Welcome to Earth Matters, environment and social justice stories from Australia and around the world. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR, on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Judith Peppard. Today on Earth Matters, we look at COP15, the United Nations Biodiversity Conference, held in Montreal, Canada, from December 7th to the 19th, 2022. Described by many as the world's last chance for stopping biodiversity loss and preventing ecological collapse, the overall objective is to encourage action which will lead to a sustainable future. We begin with Nathaniel Pele, a campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation, or ACF, as it's commonly known. Nat tells us what's at stake at the COP15 meeting in Montreal. Closer to home, Ben Cook from the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University in Nam, Melbourne, explains why designating areas for protection has not been enough to address biodiversity loss in Australia. And after that, we'll hear from Rodney Carter, Jaja Wurung Group CEO, about the forest gardening strategy launched in the Victorian town of Bendigo and led by traditional owners' knowledge systems. First up, Nathaniel Pele from ACF. I caught up with Nat just before he boarded a plane to attend the COP15 meeting in Montreal. And since we'd had two international meetings on climate over the past two months, I began by asking how the UN COP27 climate meeting, held in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt in November, related to the UN Biological Diversity Meeting, about to begin in Montreal. They relate to each other in some important ways. One, the science is now telling us that we will not be able to solve climate change without addressing the destruction of nature, and neither will we protect species or end extinction without addressing climate change. So we're realising we have to tackle these two issues together, and a lot of the solutions to climate change come from nature. We have to replace some of the forests and other ecosystems that we've destroyed and degraded if we are to solve climate change. We absolutely have to stop emissions from fossil fuels, but even that isn't enough without repairing the natural world. And this particular COP, A, it's been delayed because of COVID, so people weren't actually able to meet in person. So it's a particularly significant one. We've said it's the most important decision for nature in a decade. This is about setting up the new post-2020 global biodiversity framework post-2020 because it was meant to be decided in 2020. And that's the next 10 years or the next eight years, in fact. It's critical because biodiversity is in the worst state it's ever been. This is, I won't say it's the last chance, but it's pretty urgent. Australia is one of the world's 17 megadiverse countries. Those countries are host to 70% of the world's biodiversity. And we're the only developed country that is megadiverse and a party to these negotiations. The US is also a megadiverse country, but isn't part of it, isn't a signatory to COP15. Megadiverse countries are important because not only do they have a lot of the world's biodiversity, but each one of them has a lot of endemic or unique biodiversity. We have a lot of species that don't live anywhere else on the planet. There are some obvious ones like platypus, but what would be some other ones? Kangaroos, almost all of the freshwater fish species. Australian sea lions are one of the most, I think they are the most endangered 
pinniped, that's all seals are, are pinnipeds in the world. They only live in a small band of coastline around uh, Adelaide and South Australia. Absolutely stunning creatures that live nowhere else on earth and are close to extinction. If they're lost in Australia, they're lost to the world. And that goes for a lot of species in a lot of parts of the world. So when you look at, say, a map of Australia, what sort of areas would you be pinpointing around the loss of biodiversity? Unfortunately, the answer is a lot of the country is at risk. Scientists evaluated our major ecosystems and found 19 of Australia's most important ecosystems are in a state where they are approaching collapse. Ecosystems are important because that's where biodiversity and animals live. And the species that live there live there because that ecosystem is perfect for them. Everything from Australia's tropical savanna, which stretches all the way across northern Australia from the Kimberley to the Cape. It's one of the most intact savanna systems in the world, but it's still being damaged pretty heavily by overgrazing. There's a lot of expansion of coal seam gas mining in the Northern Territory. The mountain ash forests of Victoria are being lost at an alarming rate due to logging. The Great Southern Reef, the much less famous cold water reef system that stretches around Southern Australia, where we're losing some of the most spectacular kelp forests in the world. And all of these places are home to species that can't live in other parts of the world, and quite a few are at risk. What can COP15 actually do? These international agreements can go in a variety of ways, but what COP15 can do is set targets that businesses and governments will have to re-engineer and transform their economies, their business activities to fit within. And a really good example is that the European Union released its draft sustainability reporting standards. From 2024, European companies, big financial institutions, big food companies, your Nestle's, your Unilever's, will have to explain how they are transitioning their businesses to fit within the targets set in Montreal in December. They'll have to explain that to their shareholders and to the governments. So the main thing that these meetings can do is give us a Southern Cross to aim for when we are talking to businesses, that's organisations like ACF or consumers, citizens talking to their local MPs. Those businesses are watching what will happen. Australia has domestically in the lead up to this meeting set a goal of ending extinction. That's quite a big deal, in fact, because we have one of the worst extinction rates in the world, highest rate of mammal extinction. What that means is now we have to set up our economy so that the way it interacts with nature isn't driving any species to extinction. Targets set on restoring forests, on protecting forests, on protecting 30% of the land and sea all of those targets will have to be translated into national plans for how we're going to achieve them. And that means business, government, all, and society will have to align with those plans. So that's the optimistic version of what it could do. Thousands of global businesses are starting to become involved. But I'm just wondering, is this just greenwashing or are we seeing some real progress? It is the several trillion dollar question, how committed are businesses to transforming to a nature-positive world. And you'll hear the term nature-positive thrown around a lot, and it could become a contested term. What does it mean to be nature-positive? But there are a lot of businesses who are, I think, being very genuine about supporting transition. I won't say the majority. Certainly, it isn't likely to be the majority straight away. But enough big businesses in the financial sector, in food sector, which is absolutely critical to reversing biodiversity destruction, 
are setting these targets. 330 international businesses have supported a specific target at COP15 that would require governments to put laws in place that force businesses to measure their impacts and their dependency on nature. For all of the damage that resource companies have done, some of the bigger ones have at least begun to be transparent about the damage they're causing. It's not enough to be transparent, but without that transparency, it's much harder for us to then go to those companies and say, How, what's your plan to stop doing these uh, damaging things you're doing? Uh, what are you hoping for? Like, What's the best possible outcome for COP15? The best possible outcome is that we set a couple of really important targets, ending human-induced extinction and a commitment we will reverse nature destruction so that by 2030, nature is in better health than it was in 2020. Those two together underpin or imply a whole lot of actions that will have to be taken at a domestic level. So the next thing that we need to get is a commitment on implementation. It's one thing to set these targets, but the last set of targets failed because there was no standardized requirement for governments to report on how they're going to meet them. We need all of the countries in the world to commit to setting domestic targets in line with COP15. Otherwise, it doesn't work. That's what's critical. These agreements are global agreements, but the laws are made at home. What's important is that we then come home, that Tanya Plibersek and Anthony Albanese and the Australian government sets targets that have integrity, regardless of whether you know we had to give something up in Montreal. We need to commit to the targets that science tells us are necessary in Australia. Nathaniel Pelle, environmental campaigner from the Australian Conservation Foundation. And Montreal was ready for the big conference as people gathered on the streets to demand real change. Montrealers protested the start of the United Nations Conference on Biodiversity, officially kicking off here at the Palais des Congrès Wednesday. Thousands of students on strike, anti-capitalist groups and environmental activists hoping to... More on COP15 later. But right now, we're going to look at what's been happening in Australia around biodiversity and protected areas. Ben Cook from the Centre of Urban Research at RMIT University in Melbourne has been looking at why Australia has been doing so poorly. He and his colleagues have written a paper entitled Protecting 30% of Australia's Land and Sea by 2030 Sounds Great, but it's not what it seems. So I began by asking Ben the obvious question, why isn't it what it seems? Having protected areas on paper or in law doesn't guarantee any actual on-ground activity or sufficient funding or necessarily dictate who's doing that conservation work and in what context. And those types of questions are critically important, particularly in settler colonial contexts where we're talking often about stolen lands. How is biodiversity and land protection looking in Australia right now? At the moment, we've got, and this includes commitments that are soon to be enacted, we've got about 22% of our terrestrial land surface that achieve some type of protected area status. A lot of people assume that national parks are the only form of protected area status, but it can include private land that has some type of planning control or covenant or easement on the land, and it can be land that's owned by or under control of First Nations people 
in Australia, that's often Indigenous protected areas, and that's a particular conservation status that now is around 50% of our protected area system, which a lot of people don't know. So given that we've got that much protected area, we still heard Tanya Plibersek say we have a grim story of crisis and decline. Why is that? A bunch of reasons. Having protected areas doesn't mean we actually have the allocated funding to to do the kind of work in those spaces that needs to be done to protect the species that were intended to be protected. But more fundamentally, it's the fact that protecting an area doesn't address the drivers of biodiversity loss in the first place. They can be continued extraction of of resources from mining to forestry to agriculture, pollution or land degradation. In your paper, you say in total public protected areas like national parks have only contributed to about 5% of the expansion of terrestrial protected areas since 1996, that non-government organisation land purchases, Indigenous protected areas and individual private landholders have facilitated 95% of the growth. I mean, I just found that an incredible statistic. Can you tell me a bit more about that? What we're seeing is a long history of government at various levels seeking to withdraw their hands-on participation in protected area conservation while still wanting to dictate the broad frameworks for how we do it. There's been a clear outsourcing of funding and activity around conservation. That includes providing some funding to environmental NGOs to purchase land, as long as they can also secure private funding to to co-fund that purchase. That scheme existed for a period of time, but then once withdrawn, left environmental NGOs with large swathes of land to manage with no government funding to do so. The state has supercharged land purchases for conservation, and we now have environmental NGOs with enormous amounts of land. The Australian Wildlife Conservancy, for example, manages or owns land area twice the size of Tasmania. And then when you look at Indigenous protected areas as well, so we're talking about agreements that generally occur on native title land but allow um, First Nations people to access funding to do biodiversity conservation on their own lands. When you break down the actual amount of funding, which might sound like a significant amount, it breaks down to a few cents per hectare per year. You have a situation where the federal government is claiming in international arenas, as it will be at COP15, that it is on track to achieve 30% of terrestrial land service protection by 2030. Over half of that now, and a significant amount to come, will be achieved through Indigenous protected areas that are funded by the federal government at a rate of only a few cents per hectare per year. So significant benefit for the federal government for a very minimal financial outlay. You get a false sense of security when you hear these statistics about all this land designated to be protected, when the reality is quite different. The other part of the funding to Indigenous groups is it's piecemeal and uncertain when it's coming through. Absolutely. So the funding is on short-term cycles. There's the constant process of having to reapply, of having to complete onerous evaluation processes. There are a number of First Nations groups now much more reliant on private markets, on carbon markets for their funding and see those as providing more stability and more opportunity. And the other point too, which is true here and in places like Canada as well, is where we're relying on First Nations people to deliver 
significant amounts of their protected area target, but we're not seeing really significant efforts to address questions of sovereignty in places as well. So you would expect and you would hope that where there is such a huge effort by First Nations to deliver on these targets, that there be a greater willingness to engage with questions of how sovereignty might be more meaningfully addressed, but those conversations haven't necessarily been as forthcoming. So are there any successes you could point to that would lead the way for the future? In Australia, there's been a, an effort in some environmental NGOs in particular to changing the way that they think about conservation, to not be quite as Western-centric. We are seeing some sporadic examples where environmental NGOs are purchasing degraded lands, so heavily modified lands, which is not usually what they would do and to enter into partnerships with First Nations people to care for that country, to heal that country, but then to return land to traditional ownership. That idea that we can use these types of arrangements to challenge the way that we might have done conservation um, traditionally in a Western context and to meaningfully address conservation's role in colonial governance systems, there's some real opportunities for that and some willing partners to get involved. And we're starting to see some of those opportunities emerge. What would you like to see coming out of the UN COP15 meeting? Local context really matters and that different responses are needed in different places and that communities and First Nations people need to be the ones driving and leading change on the ground. That's really critical. Ben Cook from the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University in Melbourne. You're listening to Earth Matters, environment and social justice stories from Australia and around the world, produced at 3CR Community Radio Station in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. And today, we're looking at the UN Biological Diversity Meeting, or COP15, held in Montreal, Canada, from December 7th to 19th, 2022 and its resonances in Australia. The importance of cultural knowledge and local communities leading the way in decisions about biodiversity was a huge theme throughout the UN COP15 meeting. And as the meeting progressed with all its ups and downs and inevitable walkouts, in Australia, JARA, the Jaja Wurrung clan's Aboriginal corporation, was launching the Forest Gardening Strategy, which demonstrated how First Peoples' knowledge could guide a different and more holistic way of thinking about land management. Rodney Carter, the CEO of the Jaja Wurrung Group, spoke with me on the phone from Bendigo on the day of the launch. I began by asking Rodney to tell me more about how a cultural landscape lens is helping to bridge differences between Indigenous and Western, in quotes, worldviews. A cultural way to do things is how do you put the people back into landscape as gardeners of the environment, as tending to the garden. What we strongly believe is that it's sensible and very purposeful to have those as descendants of the creators of landscape, what my ancestors did, back at country interacting. And this is where I think we can be clever with a more emotional or spiritual connection cultural knowledge that's a bit more personal and intimate through our observations and science in a modern sense can sit beside that not describe it as we're a living experiment we're not a closed environment and science role the modern science is is now to actually 
collect data and look at what we're doing, we believe that maybe we're part of the solution to deal with climate change, survival, adaptability, better species management in biodiversity and ecosystem function. The time is right to do that because we haven't been doing that in Australia for 200 years. It certainly is time. And at an international level, of course, we have the big biodiversity conference on the COP15. And this is exactly what's coming up, that First Nations peoples, First Peoples knowledge is really important for protecting the environment. What happened was a catastrophic event with some storm damage at country where very old Matinga Guli ancestors, the trees, were thrown across landscape. How a leaf is just blown by a gust of wind. And when we went to country and we seen the country being unwell, last year we thought, no, we actually need to do something. We can't stand by, not idly, but in a disempowered position. Now, we, we need to create some form of documentation that articulates what we want to do. For the last nearly uh, year, we've been toiling away at this document, engaging our own mob, engaging industry, government and others. Now, this is our first attempt at trying to describe this strategically and what we want to do going forward. I understand you collaborated with Western scientists uh, on the project. So I'm wondering, what was that collaboration like? It was, for me, a bit eye-opening in that how much others actually wanted to hear our views and our voice. Science is a tool. It's actually not the decision maker in itself. I make decisions. We make decisions. It was just so empowering for us that others wanted us to put forward ideas. Our ideology proposed this vision and others just seen that it was really fit for purpose. It was really suitable for now and for us to do things, I'd say, differently but also based on ancient knowledge that for 60,000 years, like, it's got to be good. Let's try and stick to the, the ingredients around that, that recipe. And when I describe it as ingredients, the only thing missing a lot of the times is, is my people, the absence of my people being able to lead, be involved and, you know, do good things. And you've developed it over the past year based on, you know, tens of thousands of years of knowledge. Mm. What are you hoping to discover, I guess, through the strategy? What will the strategy offer you and, and all of us? I think it'll give us some focus and it's suggestive of some methodologies to use modern technologies in landscape and forest management to create some sort of physical ease but also efficiency in what we do. So for us to go out, connect as people with those trees that can and should be ancestors, grow with bigger canopies now to shelter and shade and create a protective environment now in forests to become woodlands to help us, again, gardening, create a diversified abundance of food and fibre plants to then bring fire management. Our Jandak we as a tool, as a form of ongoing uh, tending and management of landscapes. So cultural thinning is something that's really important for us and to partner with others is not the forestry of old. It's a new way of doing it. And the way I describe it too, Judith, if we, we care for country and we heal country, now in its abundance, it can gift us things that we need. And if we need timber as an example, 
It's because how we tend the garden and make it more productive that we get timber afforded. We don't go into a forest driven by demand and need and maybe even greed in some instances and we take. It's really flipping that on its head and looking at country in a totally new way that's founded on ancient knowledge. And it sounds like you're giving to country and country is giving to you. Exactly. It's it's about reciprocity, that reciprocal nature of you care for your, your home, Mother Earth, and if it can afford it, then it will gift you things. So it's really flipping these ideas. I think us as modern people, when we think of natural resources and we talk about sustainability and we push that to its limits in the way that the country is managed as opposed to being tended and lived with. It just sounds so much like this is the way we need to go forward with respect for land, with respect for forests. I think this is a really defining moment for us in trying to manage country, heal country. The idea of forest gardening, can you just say briefly what that is? Well, forest gardening, we think the two words, we understand as people, what is forest? It's trees, it's parkland in a sense, it's a degree of just being present and it shouldn't be isolated. And gardening, we understand what we do ourselves in our own home where we actually tend to the garden and we look at what's invasive, what is there for us to usefully use. So we're present as people and forest gardening is really about that. For the first time ever, not treating Australia anymore or our country in central Victoria as wilderness. It was never wilderness. So we want it to be a garden again. We want to tend that garden and, and we want all people that live and visit our homelands to participate in enjoying what we will do together. And a wonderful invitation there from Rodney Carter, CEO of the Jaja Wurung Group in the Jaja Wurung Clans Aboriginal Corporation. And what about COP15? After marathon talks, close to 200 countries struck a deal to halt and reverse biodiversity loss under the new Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. The framework sets a target of protecting 30% of land and oceans, inland waters and coastal areas by 2030 and restoring 30% of degraded ecosystems. It also recognizes that Indigenous peoples are the best stewards of nature. We're coming to the end of this week's edition of Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. A big thank you to all our guests today, Nathaniel Pelle, and you can find out more about the work of the Australian Conservation Foundation by going to their website, www.acf.org.au. Ben Cook from the Centre of Urban Research at RMIT University, and we'll put a link to his paper on the Earth Matters website. And Rodney Carter, CEO of the Jaja Wurung Group, and the JARA website, www.djadjawurrung.com.au. Thank you to the Community Radio Network for their support in broadcasting today's episode and getting it out to you, and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio Station in Nam, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr, all one word, at gmail.com. I'm Judith Peppard signing off for this edition of Earth Matters. 
Do tune in next week for more environment and social justice stories and going out as always with the sound of the wetland frogs, even more aware of how important they are and the need to value and look after them and their habitats.